Elizabeth Hinkle is a licensed marriage and family therapist licensed in Virginia, Kansas, and Washington, and has a telehealth private practice, MH Matters LLC. Elizabeth sees individual clients of all ages, as well as couples, and uses a systemic perspective to provide support for relationships, parenting, and family dynamics. So welcome, Elizabeth. Welcome to, thanks for coming on to here. We're, we're doing another episode of these. So we're working with uh, Elizabeth Hinkle, LMFT. Um, Elizabeth, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, originally licensed in Virginia. And since then I've gotten two additional license and I have a private practice and have been seeing clients for about 18 years total since I got my degree and work with all ages and really enjoy providing therapy. Right now, my practice is 100% telehealth. Elizabeth and I, we used to be neighbors uh, back when, when I started out, when I got out of my fellowship and she was my, uh, started, we started at one of the, uh, Bigger hospital systems in Northern Virginia, working with kiddos and adolescents at the facility over there. And she really helped to welcome me as I was like becoming my grown ass self and being an attendant. So uh, she's always stayed in my mind. And then she left and we we're like, oh no, we miss Elizabeth. But we've we kind of reconnected a bit over social medias and just, you know, generalist stuff. So I thought it'd be great to have her on here because I want to, you know, we talk a lot about psychiatry stuff, but we also talk about like mental health and therapy and stuff. So one of the questions that I get a lot from people is, well, when I'm looking for a therapist, what degree am I looking for? And why do these people have all these different degrees? And what do they mean? And what's this? And is one better than another? what is an LMFT? What's a licensed marriage family therapist? And, and can you explain the differences a little bit more, probably better than I can, about all, you know, LPCs and LCSW, and there's probably ABCs and things that I'm forgetting. So go for it. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned the main ones. Um, and that that's a great question. And I hear that a lot too. It is confusing because there's different ways, different routes to become a therapist. And so what I did was a program specifically about marriage and family therapy, which is basically taking a look at the systems perspective and learning a lot specifically about relationships and working with couples and families. So that was sort of my area of focus in my training. And then most people who have a degree in marriage and family family therapy makes sense that they're going to become an LMFT, which is actually one of the relatively newer license. What most people have heard of and has been around for a really long time is social work. And so people can get a master's in social work without it being a clinical focus, but certainly there are clinical social workers. And so that's another area of master's level training. And so People who get a master's in social work with a clinical focus go on to be LCSW, licensed clinical social worker. And then there's the LPC, licensed professional counselor. And that's the other sort of bigger, well-known license. And so what that can look like is a master's in some type of counseling. There's all different kinds of programs, community counseling, and and then other areas of, of specialty and focus. So it's really about what kind of graduate training do you have um, and then what license kind of matches up best with that. In terms of when people are looking for a therapist, many times it doesn't truly matter as much about which kind of degree or which kind of license. The main thing I encourage people to look for are what is those uh, areas of focus for that clinician? So in other words, something I specialize in is working with couples. Not everybody does that kind of work. Somebody with an LCSW and LPC could also work with couples and many don't. So it's kind of based on what you're looking for. Another area of my special training is in DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. And so I work with people who want to learn that and those types of skills and do that type of therapy. 
anybody with any type of license potentially could have that kind of training. So it's more relevant to look for what are the populations the therapist likes to and has experience working with, and then what kinds of things are you looking for as the client? Does it seem like that part's going to be a good fit? And it's hard, right? Because even for Again, myself, like as a psychiatrist, I'm, when I'm looking for things and I get these questions a lot from people like, well, who, who should I look for? What's the thing? And I'm looking for this. I'm looking for that. And I, I, sometimes I don't know, right? Because, and a lot of it too also is state dependent, right? Because I think in, in different states, there's different licenses and they, you know, it, it varies. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, most states have all of the license we've talked about now. Um, like I said, LMFT was kind of one of the relatively later ones to come along. So most people are more familiar with the others. Um, but certainly it can vary by state. And then it can just vary by what that person's kind of you know, training and experience has been. So another example is uh, where we met and, and a lot of my clinical work has been with adolescents. So that's something that I have become kind of more specialized in, in, in over the years. Not necessarily ha everyone has that same type of training and experience. So to me, again, that's kind of the, the more important thing to focus on. Can you give an example? Because I think, you know, there's a lot of people who have an idea of like, oh, if someone's becoming a doctor, they have to go to med school and then they go or they go to college and then med school and a residency and maybe a fellowship. And then they're like a quote unquote real doctor. It's not dissimilar for a lot of therapists and counselors to have a, a long kind of multi-step journey. And I think there's a lot of people who don't know exactly how many steps and um, processes and there are along the way. Could you think you could walk us through what a typical route may look like? So typically what you do is, is some type of relevant experience in your undergrad, not always. Some people I went to graduate school with were coming from a completely different background. I had an attorney who was in my program, um, for example. So you don't necessarily have to have that background in, in human services or a related field. I think it helps too. But um, so essentially you're starting graduate school and that can be one year for some programs. Mine happened to be three years full time. Um, it was a pretty intense program. And so a lot of people, again, don't really understand the amount of time that I spent in both coursework. And then I did a two semester practicum and a 12 month internship at two different types of settings. So programs really vary, again, with how many credits they are, how long they are. They typically involve some type of practicum internship, whether it's one or two different combinations thereof, to then get your degree. From your degree, you're considered a resident in counseling or therapy. That's kind of what the Board of Counseling officially calls you. Um, until you're licensed. So the licensure process is, again, something I think you're right, not a lot of people really know about or understand. And certainly when we as students are getting into our graduate programs, we don't even really understand the full process and commitment there. Licensure can take, again, a year, a couple of years. For me, it took a few years because what we're doing is accumulating amounts of hours of experience. And during that time, we also have to have something called clinical supervision, where we meet with somebody who has a license and is an approved supervisor to be able to talk through with us various situations that come up clinically or with ourselves, or there's different kinds of supervision. So we are, again, investing our time and money a lot of times into that process for a few years to be then be able to get our license. And then from there, it's kind of, you know, again, based on your experience and interests on what you're kind of doing next after that point. The hours are not a insignificant amount, right? There, it's not like, oh, you have to do like 50 hours and you're good to go. It's like a thousand, two thousand. What is it? Like, it depends, right? It depends on which state and which license, because again, we have so many variations on this. Um, if I recall correctly, I had to do 4,000 total and 2,000 oh of gosh. those had, yeah, 
<laughs> if I'm remembering correctly now, this was many years ago, um, but I think I had to do 4,000 total, 2,000 more relational, meaning anytime I was with two or more related people, so it could be family, it could be a couple, I was fortunate I did a lot of work in intake assessments with teens, so I had that parent-child relational time. So getting those hours came relatively quickly. What took longer for me was getting the supervision hours. And then you have to have a certain ratio of supervision to the hours that you're counting. So it's it's pretty tricky. And I think you had touched upon something else that like I've learned over the years is that like supervision isn't free. It's no. and, and of itself, like it's, you know, when I'm looking at it, I was like, this seems like a, a giant scam that's going on here. Um, talk, talk to us a little bit about that, about that, because it's it's really an interesting and, and unique part of the field. Yeah, supervision is not free for most people, although sometimes you're able to get it through the agency or place that you're working people who like I was fortunate when I first got my job right out out of grad school I had clinical supervision although it wasn't all of it I could get some of it through my workplace that was kind of one of their benefits so they of course paid me significant significantly less as an unlicensed person and that's typically the structure unfortunately most people who are waiting for that license aren't really getting a whole lot of money. Now, I'll comment on most people who are licensed aren't getting paid tons of money either, but that's a different topic. Um, so during the supervision process, yes, many times, and so something I had to do was also pay for supervision outside of the workplace benefit. And that can be just as expensive as paying for therapy out of pocket, potentially. Um, so it, it can really range. And I was fortunate, again, to find somebody who gave me a little bit of a, you know, a nice deal. Um, some supervisors are more reasonable that way. But that can be 100 plus an hour to have another investment, again, while you're still trying to, to pay off student loans potentially so yeah it's it can be an expensive process which i think a lot of people don't really understand yeah and i think that was one of the biggest kind of in, in my eyes like an eye-opener when i really started to spend a lot more time with a lot of the therapists you know at where we work and just in general and really understanding what they're going through i was like wow this is a very different process than what i was expecting or had imagined and, and really brutal in a way, because again, like, we hear this from a lot of people and we talk with they, them, like, you know, they, they're in their residency and they're getting paid not very much and then they're spending um, money for supervision and their student loans and like, they're having to take, you know, second jobs and they're, they're like, oh, you know, when I was, we were looking to hire a resident recently out of my practice and you know she's saying like oh i'm i'm waiting tables right now at olive garden as well and it's kind of like this isn't what you expect when you're kind of when you're like oh i'm going to become a therapist and a counselor no not at all and it's not unusual if we, for people to have second jobs or a side gig and and be able to try to just you know survive and pay their bills that way so it's certainly not what people mostly expect or really um unfortunately this work is challenging enough emotionally as you know and so when we're also kind of spreading ourselves thin with doing other types of work or other jobs to just make ends meet can be really hard really stressful people who, who are not in the know the government people then will start pointing the fingers and say why do we have a mental health shortage why can't we do x y and z right because it's like this is why we've created all these barriers to care barriers to get people into the workforce and you know we have to protect our people and you know and it's another thing also when we're talking with like therapy and stuff is our expected caseloads are not what you know when, when we think of like a pediatrician or a primary care doctor or they're like oh they're seeing 50 patients a day is like you're not going to see 50 patients total <laughs> right <laughs> no not even in a week even though some places might expect that. <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's the reality is like your your ability to you know care for yourself and care for your clients correctly is you're you're not able to have that many people. It just doesn't work. 
That's right. And so when we think about the time spent, most people are aware that, like, let's take your traditional outpatient setting, for example. Most people know or, or a lot of people are familiar that we'll do a 50-minute session. That's sort of what we get typically reimbursed for uh, through the insurance model. And that's kind of what our profession has just sort of evolved to be. So a lot of times people think or agencies or, or various people kind of think, well, you know, you've got the hours in your day to see seven or eight clients, but not looking at the emotional toll that that takes. It's not just physically being present. It's so much emotional work to show up for a client. You had mentioned you do some work with couples and then you work with all ages of stuff. I know when we work together, we're working, you know, in the children, adolescent world, but what's, what's the differences from your point of view between working with kids, teens, adults, and, and do you have a preference for who you like to work with and then individuals versus couples or families? And the interesting thing uh, about, me and my practice is I see kind of all ages and not everybody does it that way. A lot of people have a preference. I really do genuinely like the variety of different ages. I have a passion for children and teens. I have for a long time and, and young adults included and love the family work. Since I'm doing telehealth, I don't really see families unless it's just two people. It's very kind of logistically tricky to do. Uh, couples are great. It's very different. It's actually, in my opinion, the hardest type of therapy to do. So that can be even more emotionally sort of draining or just use more emotional energy. Kids are so fun. Over telehealth can also be some challenges, of course, to do it that way. Um, so this is a long answer to say there are a lot of differences and I enjoy it all. And that's what makes marketing for me a challenge because <laughs> ideally we're supposed to have a niche, so they say, and I like doing a lot of different things. We're kindred spirits in that regard, right? This is why we have, this is why I have two practices and all the different things that we do is because we, we like to do a little bit of all, we like to do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You brought up, um, really something you know with with the past few years past couple of years especially with covid and the shift towards telehealth and i know you were doing a little bit of telehealth before covid as well and i think the biggest thing a lot of therapists and myself included have kind of struggled with with telehealth is working with kids especially with kids um and just the struggles that come along with that in-person the lack of the in-person stuff and that connection that's there with the kids. Talk to us about that a little bit. And then maybe, you know, if you've had some good success with it, you know, some tips that can help people who are struggling a bit. Sure. Yeah. It, it does present some unique challenges. And so I was a little bit ahead of the curve before the pandemic. I had some experience with telehealth. That was one of my side gigs. I had a full-time job and then started out part-time with one of the companies and got some great experience that way and really felt fortunate that I had made the shift to work from home and telehealth even before the pandemic started because I know that was another major major stressor and adjustment for us as clinicians to suddenly have, have to do things a different way. And I'm a firm believer that there is just as much benefit and some, some additional benefits for people, for example, who are more socially anxious and aren't going to get themselves to an appointment or maybe have chronic illnesses or fatigue or whatever might be going on for them physically they might not be able to get themselves to an appointment. I also see a lot of professionals who wouldn't be able to do therapy if it weren't for the fact that they can just kind of pop in, sign in over their lunch break. And so many advantages to telehealth. One of the challenges, of course, are the younger population who might not have maybe some of the same focus and attention. They're certainly not going to most of the most of the time going to want to do talk therapy the whole time. Um, and so back in the face-to-face -face work, I used a lot of games, a lot of drawing, art, um, different kinds of 
uh, ways to engage them. And uh, that worked really well. Those are more limited over telehealth. There are certainly telehealth games you can play. And one of the things I've recently been experiencing is a little bit of virtual reality and going into a, a HIPAA compliant space with a couple of uh, younger people and connecting that way with avatars. And, and that, again, could be a whole separate conversation, but some really cool options out there. So I think it's about creativity and being open and then making sure it's the right match. I have a client who just turned nine and she happens to be able to do things like focus on a workbook. She has a copy, I have a copy. And we've kind of gone through it together and do different activities. And we'll talk through, um, you know, her part. She'll write things down and show me and tell me. I have another client who really enjoys um, in the private practice platform I use. There's a whiteboard. And so we can draw together through the whiteboard. And sometimes he isn't as verbal. And so we'll switch over to the chat and he'll tell me a lot more through the chat than he will with verbalizing words and emotions. So I think it's, again, those are kind of some thoughts and tips about just being open to trying different things and seeing what's really going to work best for you and for your client. And again, not everybody's going to, you know, work well in that way. So I'm always open to making a referral to a face-to-face -face practitioner for anybody, any age who I think this, okay, isn't necessarily working for you in, the, in terms of the connection. And I think that's like a really important point too that you're bringing up is knowing when what you're doing isn't working and knowing when to say, hey, I, I think we need to kind of do something different. And it's, it's hard, right? When you're in private practice and you're kind of, I don't want to say you're fighting for people, right? But you're trying to, you're trying to get some clients, some patients, and then you have to be like, this isn't working and I need to send you out. I need you to send you somewhere else. So it's, it's a, it's a hard thing, but it's necessary, right? If you're really trying to do the best that you can do for, for your peoples. Absolutely. I'll, I'll give another quick example. I had a young person I very much enjoyed working with who initially told me a little bit about um, some history with an eating disorder. And that kind of evolved over the course of our time together. And I began to realize that they needed more face-to-face -face work for true evaluation. It's also not an area of my specialty. And I was very transparent about that at the beginning. However, I think that because of our work together and the consistency we were able to have and the connection we had, that made the, okay, here's the next recommendation, the next step for you, a little bit easier for that client. You talked about working with, we'll go back a little bit, but working with like couples and stuff. And I think a lot of people have a lot of interest and I think anybody in a relationship could benefit from like couples work. Um, and we and people, can you talk a bit about couples work and family work as a whole? Just because I think when people have this idea or the misconception, they're like, oh, you're in couples counseling. What's wrong with your marriage or what's wrong with your relationship? Um, and I think we know that that's a false kind of idea. But talk to us uh, about that. And I think it's really interesting in some of the misconceptions and some of the benefits from couples work. Sure. Yeah. Happy to speak on that. And and you're right. I think a lot of times there is that sort of negative connotation with there must be something wrong when there doesn't necessarily have to be. And some couples even are proactive and want to do the premarital or not even they're necessarily going to get married or need to be married. Um, they just want to establish more of a uh, stronger connection or bond or better communication earlier on in their relationship. And I really commend people who take more of the proactive step to do that before it feels like the relationship is sort of untenable or one person already has their foot out the door. When it's that kind of situation that makes the, the work that we're doing in therapy a lot more difficult because a lot of times people have already sort of mostly decided they're out. And so backing up to when you do feel committed with your partner, it can be a really helpful resource. I tell couples all the time, we've all got our own stuff. Um, 
things from childhood, messages from parents, um, areas of attachment or non-attachment or whatever that looks like for us, all sorts of things going on that can easily get triggered and come up in relationships. And so that tends to be one of the most common things that I help people with is what does that look like when you're getting kind of triggered? How do you self-soothe? How do you co-regulate and then maintain the connection and communicate? Um, condensing it to a, a very small <laughs> portion of, of the work. But yeah, I think the more proactive and the sooner you can get into it and recognizing that all couples need help at some point in their relationship, I'm a fan of that. And I think it was really good that you're bringing up that other part too, where when people are backed into kind of, we hear this a lot, right? Is, oh, my spouse is making me see you, right? They're making me go to therapy or they're making me see a psychiatrist or we're in a couple's counseling situation where, again, like you're saying, one person's foot's out the door already. Like, you know, that's, it, we are, we know what the end game is, right? We know the outcome of that one already. And and, it, and a lot of those ones, it's like, it's, we're too late. You know, we're, we're many steps too late in that situation. Um, so I think it's really important, you know, to, to kind of really say like, hey, you want to be ahead of this before there's a quote unquote a problem and realizing that like, hey, if there's stuff that's there, get ahead of it before it becomes too late and already we're out the door. Absolutely. And I, one of the first things I'll ask people is, whose idea was it to, to do this? And then how does the other person feel? And the best case scenario is when both people are equally kind of on board and committed to the process and motivated. It doesn't always work that way. But when people can at least say, okay, I'm willing to give this a chance and really stay committed to the process, which can take a while to sort of unfold, then that's when people get the most benefit. I think it's important also when we're talking with couples work is that when somebody or th that the outcome of couples work isn't always to quote unquote save the marriage. Right. And that's another kind of misconception I think that people have is that like, Oh, this is it. This is the thing that's going to fix it. And that's not always the case, right? It's part of couples work can be saying, okay, we, we cannot fix this. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that. And I always tell people, I, I don't have an agenda about what happens to their relationship. I think that's a really important part of the type of work I do. I'm not there to help them save their relationship or to break up or tell them what to do at all. It's really guiding them through the process of discovery for themselves and for their relationship. And what that might mean is things for one or both people, it might make the most sense for them to not be in that relationship any longer. And I don't consider that to be a therapy failure. I consider that to be a success that they have gotten support through that process and then can hopefully be in the best possible place for their next future relationship one day down the road. How do you, so you, you had said right now before that like you don't have an agenda. And one of the questions that I hear a lot and we hear as a whole is how do you take care of yourself? How do you get yourself invested in your clients, but not so invested that it impacts you? That's a great question. And I think a really relevant one for all types of therapy, no matter what age we're seeing, or if it's individual, couple, family, group work. So I think of it as some boundaries that are also permeable, let's say. So I'm there, I'm present. I really use a lot of mindfulness in my life and in my work to be in the moment and fully engaged as much as possible. I don't think anybody can do that 100% of the time, but I'm there. And this is something I've practiced over the 18 plus years since I've finished graduate school. So I have that advantage as well, a lot of practice with this. So to really be present and truly care, and that happens to be one of the gifts that I was given as a person is I truly do care about people. I'm genuinely interested in getting to know them and like to know people and what sort of turns them on and off and what they like. And I think that's a key part of doing this type of work. So when my clients pick up on the fact that I'm really present and caring and connected with them, then they're going to show up kind of and do 
their best possible work in the session. And then when the session's over, that's my time to kind of maybe draw the curtain a little bit with that boundary of, I can't be a part of their lives all of the time. I don't want to be, that wouldn't be appropriate to be. And they need to learn how to do whatever they're doing, whatever they're working on without me. So I also don't see myself as the savior or the rescuer in their lives, which I think is an important part of having that boundary. I'm here to help and support you. I genuinely care about you. This is also a professional relationship where you're going to tell me feedback about what I'm doing or not doing to help you in sessions and out of sessions. And then I care about you. And then we're going to kind of leave it at that. And then you're sort of off to do your own thing in between times we're meeting or at the point when we're ready to wrap up. And that's something that helps me. If I know I'm doing my best in those moments, then it's so, so important for me to be able to kind of turn that part off. One of my physical boundaries at home is I'm fortunate to have an office and I only work in my office. And so when I leave the office, that's a time, that's a signal to my brain to say, that's the end of that. It's time for me to go to other parts of my home and life and take care of myself and do different parts of, of things to for me. Yeah, the, the physical boundaries, like the office, again, like even this whole pandemic situation through when it was going on, like I would always go into the office <laughs> every day, no matter what, like yeah. again, just because I needed it personally for myself. Like I can't function at, at home doing work stuff. And, you know, I make sure to get everything done before I leave because I was like, once I leave the office, left the office, we're done. That's right. Absolutely. And not everybody, you know, has the office to go to or the office space. So I certainly encourage people to find whatever works for you. But another example of boundaries is I'm not going to look at or respond to emails or messages when I'm not working. So the, there's all different ways to kind of create and maintain these really important boundaries that then help us to take care of ourselves. So then I can be, again, present for the next time technology's blessing and a curse that way right because it's allowed us to be more connected but do we want to be more connected <laughs> please don't email me right please hesitate to contact me again <laughs> right but i left that on my uh when i went on vacation recently that was my out of office reply was please hesitate to contact anybody <laughs> so i love it yeah yeah definitely pros and cons to the connection i think we all have to find our ways you know turning notifications off or taking the app off our phone or whatever works for each person, but having those boundaries is super important. One of the reasons shifting gears a bit that I wanted to have you on here because I know you had a, a, a an exciting and you've gone through a bunch of different work journey. Um, I want to kind of like take us through that a little bit. I know we we got connected through, again, through our bigger health system as being a part of a bigger organization. What are some of the pros and cons of something like that? And what made you decide to leave that? Yeah, so the place where you and I were neighbors, I was there for 15 years, an outpatient behavioral health center that I was fortunate to be in many different roles and have such great experiences clinically and also as a leader. I was a program manager at one point. I did supervision, all sorts of really great experiences and opportunities. The main reason I decided to leave there was moving out of the area. And that also kind of segued nicely with what I had started part-time was doing the, the telehealth um, work online. And so I was able to kind of use that as a jumping, jumping off point to work from home. This was about three years ago that I started doing that. And that was, again, kind of in a combination of different roles and opportunities through that company. And that worked out really well as a great way for me to get experience and benefits and so forth. One thing that people often think about therapists and sometimes psychiatrists and psychologists is the ultimate goal is private practice. And I don't necessarily think that's true. I think it can be for some people. It never was really for me, ironically. It wasn't something that I had in mind as sort of the, the ultimate experience was to do private practice. Things have certainly evolved that way that I am now full-time private practice. And I'm really happy with that. It's working really well for me. 
it's a huge accomplishment, pros and cons to that as well. So some of the pros of working for companies have been, of course, the consistent pay and the structure and the benefits that come along with that, being able to get some supervision before I was licensed and, and so forth and so on. Certainly uh, working with colleagues and having amazing experiences on teams those have been some of the my favorite parts. The main pro for me with moving into private practice was honestly, I was kind of tired of making money on behalf of other people. I have a lot of skills and experience and a lot of things to offer. And it just came to the realization and desire to say, I'm willing to take the risk to do this. And that is the major con is it is a risk, just like any business that you own. You never really know for sure how's it going to go. Um, that You have to have some willingness to take some risks and put yourself out there. And especially, you know, when you're starting up um, a newer business and maybe people don't know about it yet, you kind of are putting yourself out there to say, maybe I'm not going to make as much money as I hope or expect or budget or need. So, and then you're, of course, paying for your own benefits and all the other associated costs that come with being a clinician. Side note, one of the things we didn't talk about was after licensure. So getting licensed, first of all, costs more money if you want to go back to scams for a minute. Um, we pay to take a test. And for some people, that unfortunately is a repeat process. And so, and we've recently heard in some of the news uh, about there being a lot of problems with uh, certain exams being more friendly to uh, white people, Caucasian people, and not as friendly and frankly racist, what it sounds like, to people of color, which is really unfortunate. One of the many systemic problems with our country and with this profession. So we become licensed, we pay for that. We also then pay an annual fee to keep our license. We also have to do continuing education credits, which is another cost to keep our license, the privilege of being licensed. And so that's another kind of side thing that sometimes employers will give you as a benefit, certain trainings or CEUs as they're called, um, they'll give you, they'll pay for those. In private practice, you're kind of just doing it all on your own and figuring it out. You really see, you know, especially because I I do both, right? And I think we had that you had that that both as well. We were like, oh, this is really nice. This is really nice to have this aspect. And then, like you said, cutting out the middleman when it comes to financials, you're like, oh, this is really nice. And it's only when you make a shift towards one fully, right? When you go away from one, when you really lose the things that you kind of get used to, you're like oh, wow, I was actually getting a lot more than I thought I was. Um, you know, those benefits were really benefits. And like health insurance is like really nice to have. And like being connected with a larger health system is really nice sometimes. And I think like, you know, one of the reasons that I'm really hesitant to like leave my job, you know, where we were working is because of everything that you talked about in regards to being, you know, having colleagues and having people to stop and chat with you know we wouldn't have had this connection for ourselves if we didn't we weren't in a similar place so i think it's really important that people who are trainees or going into this or who are young in the field or students in the game they understand that a private practice is not the ultimate it doesn't have to be the ultimate end goal that's not the only option that there are fulfilling and, and satisfying you know, jobs within larger health systems or organizations that are there. Absolutely. And financial was not my only motivation for doing it this way. Um, and it's certainly, again, pros and cons, but I think you make a great point that I think it's really about what's going to work best for each person and what are your preferences and then kind of where are you in your career? And I have openly said, um, I don't know that this is going to be something I do for the rest of my career, however long that may be, that this is like, again, the ultimate kind of now I'm doing this and, and there's none other. I might want to at some point go back and um, 
return to work with an agency or some type of, of community to have that sense of connection. I'm an extrovert. So one of the things for me that we talked about earlier is being active on social media as a way to feel connected with other uh, mental health clinicians. And then I also am actually part of two peer supervision groups, which is an amazing way to try to stay connected and have that sense of like sort of coffee with colleagues. So I think, again, it's kind of what you create for yourself in those ways and what's important to you. Some introverted people don't really want to have the chit chat in the break room every day. So maybe they would prefer uh, working more on their own. You know, I give, I go back every year, I give a, a lecture at my old fellowship program. Um, I constantly like I'm in touch with like residents and fellows and psychiatry. And, you know, I get approached by people wanting to go into private practice a lot. And we just, you know, chat and stuff. And one of the things, the most common things I hear is like, I'm, I'm afraid of being isolated. I'm afraid of being all alone and not being able to connect or I don't know if I'm going to be able to like, what if I run into a situation? So you touched upon it a little bit just saying like the social media and other things. What are some other ways that, you know, people who are going to this um, and especially I think you were saying to you, you moved, you know, a few hours south to where we were at. Um, how do you avoid that when you're when you're going to private world? I think the the yeah the connection that you can make and again pros and cons on social media being selective about with whom you're connecting is important. I have been fortunate to work with colleagues in some of my past jobs that I've felt connected to and so I mentioned the peer supervision groups which is essentially a, a chance for us to meet over Zoom or Google Meet or however we do it where we're just kind of chatting about you know, various aspects, maybe it's about private practice or clinical challenges for us or what's coming up with self-care or whatever that might be. So I made a really focused effort to be sure not to be as isolated. And, and then meeting your needs met in your free time, of course, is also important getting together with friends and not talking about work and having downtime, those kinds of things, I think are just general sort of ways that you can not feel isolated. Um, I, I told some of my friends when I started this that I wanted to be sure to really stay connected with them and make an effort to do that. And so they've been helpful in checking in on me and, and that kind of thing. So I think it's, again, kind of where you notice your needs and where you want to put those efforts. You know, again, this is another reason that I've not gone fully, fully private yet, just because of um, I enjoy socializing. I like meeting people. I like being with colleagues. And I think that's like the part of the part of the joy of the job. So one other thing I know we had talked about real briefly, you had talked about working with um, an online company. Um, and we don't have to name names, right? Uh, but one of the online companies that's out there in the mental health field or mental health apps. And we've seen recently, there's been a lot of kind of controversies um, and issues that have come up with some of them. Things like BetterHelp has kind of come under, under fire. Uh, Cerebral has come under fire a lot for various reasons. Um, what was your experience? What were some things that you liked, maybe didn't like, or your experience as a whole with working with one of those places? Yeah, uh, overall, my experience was was pretty positive, and I approached it just like I do really anything, which is I'm going to see what works for me. I'm going to make the most out of it, see what I can learn from it. And I did some work for the media team and really enjoyed that. I had different kinds of roles. I did some peer consultations for them as well. So I just tried to make the most of the opportunities as they came along. I could also start to realize and be, and you know, I, I can be naive sometimes. And I think we all can at some level in this field that we kind of hope for the best. And, you know, I wasn't and haven't been staying in touch with some of the larger big picture issues. Um, and so I just focused on what worked for me, what worked for my clients, tried to learn from it and take away what I could from that experience. Cool. So it wasn't, it's not all 
doom and gloom like we hear or reading the horror stories that are out there that there can be definitely some good stuff and i think it's it's really lost in a lot of the um articles and some of the stuff that's out there is that there are a lot of people who are who are hurt by these organizations in a way in regards to like maybe clients or patients kind of getting hurt and then there's also the therapists the providers that are getting hurt per se but it doesn't take away and i think this is part of the the kind of problem per se with some of these narratives or these articles like it doesn't take away from the skill or the ability of the providers right that are there the therapists it doesn't mean like they're crappy providers because they're working for talk space or something like that or they're they're they they have done such a terrible job and that's why the patients and there's client complaints it's you know it's some of those structural overhead issues that have kind of filter all the way down from there absolutely yeah i think that's a great point and just like any company agency hospital setting private practice wherever you go you're going to find people who are very competent and skilled and great at what they do. And you're gonna find people who unfortunately in our field, we know those clinicians exist who aren't as competent or skilled or unfortunately as ethical. And so just like anywhere you go, it's going to be a mix. And so I certainly had some positive experiences. I I was able to provide positive experiences for my clients. I can also very much validate and recognize that that wasn't true for everybody. That wasn't true for every therapist. That wasn't true for every client. I've heard this probably very similar stories as you with some of these sort of tech company, startup company issues that I don't think people really even understood as these things have evolved. We didn't really know what we didn't know until years now kind of down the road. And so it's not to make excuses for it, but it's to say that I think our field is evolving in that way. And we kind of, in my opinion, taking a holistic look, just like I do with clients, taking a look at the bigger picture is really important and not just categorizing as, okay, that's bad because of this. When any of my clients have asked me about companies like Cerebral or or whatever it might be, I tell them, do your research. Just like I, I really say with anything, I'm never going to tell people what to do. I'm going to encourage you to be informed and educated. If people want to talk to me about, should I see a psychiatrist for medications? I'm going to explore those options with them, talk through ideas, give them the education that I can provide as a therapist, and encourage them to get to the next step of, you know, meet with a provider, find out more and then you make your decision from there. Yeah, which I think is like the balanced and appropriate way of doing things, right? So, okay. Um, in wrapping up almost, but I wanted to say like if, you know, when you started your practice a few years ago in looking now in retrospect, and well, it's kind of hard because the world was a different place when you started, but would you have done, are there things that you would have done differently or what are some tips maybe for people who are, going into the private practice world, what are some things that they should focus on, not focus on, or things that you would do differently perhaps, or any some tips to pass along? Tips I would say is, again, kind of do your research, be informed and get some supports. There are people who have done this and so there's no need to reinvent the wheel. I started following some people on social media to kind of get tips and ideas who, have done this before and there's specific therapists out there who fully support clinicians who are starting a private practice. And so using those kinds of resources, I think is important. And one of the other things that I did that was so, so helpful for me was I reached out to a former colleague who had started her own practice to get her input. We had an hour long phone conversation and it was amazingly helpful to go through what kinds of things she learned from and did and didn't do or would recommend. And we talked about the whole gamut, marketing and, and client work and forms. And so you can find those types of resources and supports for people. That's one of my passions is helping other clinicians, not necessarily starting private practice, but really just being in their roles, whatever that might look like. 
And so there's there are people out there who can help you. And so if you look for that help, and then you also kind of do your research. I had the experience of having a private practice very part-time years ago. So I learned a little bit from that experience that I was then able to bring to the one I started last year now that I have. And so that was really helpful for me because I already knew a couple of things. Um, but really kind of just getting information, it's all out there. Um, and then being willing to take the risk. If you're going to do private practice, it's going to come with risk and what feels like for a while a very much a lack of balance because you're trying to find that balance of taking on clients, not doing too much. Um, and so again, kind of reaching out for support, whatever that might look like is a really helpful thing to do. It's a metaphor for therapy as a whole, right? Is the help and the resources are there. You just have to ask and put your hand out for it, right? That's right. Something that can be hard for people who work in this field is, is we're used to being helpers. We're not always used to asking for help or accepting help. So kind of getting over that hurdle can be part one, I guess. It is. It's the, the old adage of do what I say, not what I do, right? <laughs> <laughs> or isn't there a physician one, physician heal thyself? Something like that, right? Like I, would, that. <laughs> I think I, I think I skipped I skipped the lectures that day or something. So. Oops. Well, Elizabeth, Thanks. I'm gonna be mindful of your time and thank you for spending it with us and sharing uh your journey with us a little bit. Um, so thank you. Any kind of things that you wanna pass along or say as a parting from us? Oh, it's just been a pleasure. I love talking and and it's been a while since we've had a conversation. So this is really nice. And um, I could I could talk for hours. So I don't have anything in particular <laughs> <laughs> on my mind to add. Um, but yeah, it was it was a genuine pleasure. Yeah, always, always a fun one. So you were always like one of my always one of my favorites. And and definitely like I was saying, well, we definitely missed you over over where we're at. So it's good to have you I on here. Yeah, I, I miss the people for sure. Made some great longtime friends and colleagues and connections that way. So that's invaluable and, and something I do miss for sure. Just being so, silly in the hallway. <laughs> yeah, everybody who's watching or listening along, wherever you're at, keep the connections with the good people. Keep those because they you never know when you need them, right? Oh, absolutely. And that's what I think life's about, really being a human is staying connected, whether it's colleagues or friends or family. So always. Yeah.